Well, good morning. Today we are going to talk about maybe one of the most famous passages in the entire Bible, which is David and Goliath. And so uh, if you have grown up in the church, you have undoubtedly probably at some point heard the story of David and Goliath, maybe in Sunday school, maybe in church. I know that Dan talked about it last week, so there's no coincidences, of course, uh, how this works. Even if you didn't grow up in the church, I think if you grew up in the West or you grew up around other Christians, the story of David and Goliath is probably one you've heard at least once before. And it has a lot of meaning, and, and we, there's a lot of religious meaning. And in the Bible, we'll talk about what that religious meaning is today. Of course, there's like sociological meaning. You know, the little guy goes up against the big guy, the big bully, and wins. Um, so it's a great story uh, any way you slice it. Good morning. Well, here's a special guest we didn't expect to have today. So you're going to get to, you know. So maybe it's not going to be the best ever. I don't I know. I think I was going to have to read. <laughs> Well, let's talk about it. And, and so I've written a lot on the board already because I kind of want to prep us for what we're going to talk about today. Um, there is the story of David and Goliath, and we're going to talk, we're trying to get through two chapters today. But today is actually a great opportunity to talk more about how the Bible was constructed. And I know that if you've been in my class, and every single person in here has been in my class many times in the past, you know I care a lot more. Um, about the Bible, maybe in some ways than other people do, in terms of how the Bible was written and who wrote the Bible and who it was written to and when it was written. I care a lot about those things. Why? Because I think it's important that if you are a a Christian or that you uh, believe that the Bible is true, that you understand how you came to get the Bible that is in front of you right now. And, uh, And there's a lot to it. It's more complicated than you think. I want you to think today and, and part of this, too, is about our assumptions. And I think um, we're going to get into all of this today. It's important to remember that we're reading our Bibles here today in the 21st century in the United States, in the West, in a language that is very foreign to the people who originally wrote the Bible thousands of years ago. It's important to remember that we can't really project our assumptions of how the Bible was written uh, on it. On, on who wrote it, you know, one to 2,000, 3,000 years ago. A lot of our assumptions are based on how books are written today. And, and it's important to remember that's not exactly how it was in antiquity. <clears throat> and I want you to think about some of these assumptions today as we read through our passages. First of all, that you may assume that the Bible was written in a strict chronological order. Now, if you believe that, you actually have a lot of logical reason to believe that. If you open up the Bible, the very first book that you read is about the beginning of the world, and if you read the very last chapter, the last uh, book, it's about the end of the world. So you would be probably very um, uh, sound in assuming that everything in between is a logical progression um, from the earliest times to the latest times. The other thing that we tend to assume is that it's a complete record. And I think that in our day and age, maybe you assume that When you read a news report or you read a a historical account of something that happened recently, you think you're reading something complete, something in in which the author or authors tried tried to gather every fact they could and include it in the account because we assume that the focus is on a historical perspective. Now, make no mistake about it. The Bible that you have in front of you today is probably... And I, and I can say this unabashedly, because even, even scholars who argue against this really can't argue against this. This is one of the most important historical books or set of books that we have in the world, period. 
there is really no comparison. And, and you can argue about that all you want, but you're wrong. You'd be dead wrong. This is one of the most important historical sets of documents that we have from ancient history. That does not mean that the authors who wrote it were writing it for <laughs> historical reasons, but that's how we interpret it. You may also assume, and maybe you have some reason for this, that each book of the Bible was written by a single author. Okay. Now, you would also have a lot of support for this today. Why? If you go to your, well, you know, what used to be Barnes & Noble or Walden Books, I don't even know how many are still around, but if you were to buy a book online, <clears throat> uh, maybe from Amazon or something like that, er almost every book that's written today tends to be written, and this is you know, it's probably more fiction and, and kinds of popular books, written by a single author. And, and you'll see, you know, the name of the book and then the author's name underneath it. You kind of just assume, well, all books are written by single authors, right? <clears throat> Um, and so you might think, well, maybe each of the books of the Bible was written by a single author. And certainly, you know, church tradition tends to kind of reinforce this. Uh, you may have heard that the first five books of the Bible were written by Moses. Um, uh, and that uh, the Gospels have names of, of certain people with them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, um, which were added later, by the way. <clears throat> and so you might assume that each book of the Bible is written by a single person and composed and kind of thought out and written once and that was the end of it. And what we have today may be just a copy of a copy of a copy, um, but that no other authors were involved. Well, that's a big assumption and it's, it's almost certainly not true for any of the writings of the Bible. We'll talk more about that. And finally, you may assume that none of the works that you're reading have ever been edited. And there might be a lot of reasons you might assume that, and, and part of it might be a theological one. You might assume that <clears throat> while editing, Brian, assumes some kind of illicit or, or maybe malicious intent to kind of deceive or, or, or uh, you know, change history or something like that. Well, that's a, those are huge assumptions. And, and this idea that, that the works that you're reading today were never edited, meaning no one ever came back and tried to correct or add or refine, or maybe a better way to say this is <clears throat> to, to recompile in a way that, that presents a better narrative. We're going to talk about all of these today. So think about these assumptions, and you may have more as we get into the Word. Let's go ahead, and I think we're going to jump right in today to David and Goliath, 1 Samuel chapter 17. And let's just really quickly recap going through the book of 1 Samuel. This is the account of the last judge of Israel, who was who? Samuel. Samuel. Well, you see, I, I throw you softballs in the beginning because, you know, we want to warm up the crowd. Um, you know, I used to live in L.A. and we used to go see The Tonight Show. Um, at that time, it was uh, Jay Leno. And uh, it was fascinating because you get to see kind of behind the scenes how this all works. Well, you know, if you're watching TV... And, and for those of you who used to watch The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson or Jay Leno or what have you, you might assume that <clears throat> um, when you start watching it and all of a sudden, you know, there's an announcer that comes on and there's this sign that says The Tonight Show starring whoever and then there's music that plays and then, um, you know, Jay Leno comes out that you might assume that that's the first time that, that the audience that's there may have seen any of that. Well, that's, that's, that's completely not true. In fact... Um, if you go to see a talk show uh, like The Tonight Show, you actually have to arrive several hours in advance. You get in line, 
Um, you come into the theater, you, you get seated, you get, people come out and they tell you all the rules, first of all, about no photography, um, no getting up and down during the performance, um, <clears throat> you know, don't be vulgar, don't shout anything uh, inappropriate, and that sort of thing. But then they almost always have someone come out to warm up the crowd. And so in our case, when we went, it might be a producer, <clears throat> it might be uh, uh, someone who works for the show, for the production company, whatever, they'll come out and they'll warm up the audience. And it's literally like a stand-up comedian will come out and he'll, he'll get to know the audience and he'll talk to a few people and he'll tell a few jokes and he might throw a few t-shirts. Anyway, where am I going with all of this? Uh, I like to warm up our crowd today. <laughs> <laughs> Boy, that was a big surprise, man. You to juggle? That's good. Well, I could. Well, you know, it's it's early. You can juggle, actually. <laughs> it's true. I'm still stumped about this never edited thing. I thought the King James version was the original gospel okay. with language. <laughs> good. Learning something new. Thou thou art thou art uh, loved. <laughs> Well, let's have a uh, let's have a volunteer here. Let's do. Uh, oh, and, and just to recap, so First Samuel, the account of the last judge of Israel, who was Samuel, will anoint the first king of Israel, who is who? Saul. Saul. And Saul is now king. And as we pick up in chapter seventeen, Saul is king of the Israelites, and they are fighting their mortal enemy at the dawn of the Iron Age. Who is who? Philistines. Here is our land of Israel, <coughs> Dead Sea, Sea of what will be called Galilee is Chinneroth right now, the Jordan River, Jericho. Here is what will become Jerusalem, what's called Jabus today, in about a thousand BC. <coughs> this is this is the the hills, the Canaanite hills or Judean hill country. This is where the people of the twelve tribes of Israel largely have settled. They are fighting their enemy in Philistia, or the Philistines, which is on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Let's pick up. Who would like to read 1 Samuel 17, 1 through, oh goodness, 58. <laughs> I can't. Thank you, sweetheart. Okay. The Philistines gathered their armies for war. They met at Soka in Judah and camped at Ephes Damnim between Sukkah and Azkah. <coughs> Saul and the Israelites gathered in the Valley of Elah and camped there and took their positions to fight the Philistines. The Philistines controlled one hill while the Israelites controlled the other. The valley was between them. The Philistines had a champion fighter from Gath named Goliath. He was about nine feet, four inches tall. He came out of the Philistine camp with a bronze helmet on his head and a coat of bronze armor that weighed about 125 pounds. He wore a bronze protectors on his legs and he had a bronze spear on his back. The wooden part of his larger spear was like a weaver's rod and its blade weighed about 15 pounds. The officer who carried his shield walked in front of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the Israelite soldiers, why have you taken positions for battle? I am a Philistine, and you are Saul's servants. Choose a man and send him to fight me. If he can fight and kill me, we will be your servants. But if I can kill him, you will be our servants. Then he said, Today I stand and declare, dare the army of Israel. Send one of the, your men to fight me. When Saul and the Israelites heard the Philistines' words, they were very scared. Now David was the son of Jesse, an Ephrathite from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons. In Saul's time, Jesse was an old man. His three oldest sons followed Saul to war. The first son was Elab, the second was Abinadab, and the third was Shammah. David was the youngest. Jesse's three oldest sons followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to Bethlehem, where he took care of his father's sheep. 
For 40 days, the Philistine came out every morning and evening and stood before the Israelite army. Jesse said to his son David, Take this half bushel of cooked grain and ten loaves of bread to your brothers in the camp. Also, take ten pieces of cheese to the commander and to your brothers. See how your brothers are, are and bring back some proof to show me that they are all right. Your brothers are with Saul and the army in the Valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the sheep with another shepherd. He took the food and, and left as Jesse had told him. When David arrived at the camp, the army was going out to their battle positions, shouting their war cry. The Israelites and the Philistines were lining up their men to face each other in battle. David left the food with the men who kept the supplies and ran to the battle line to talk to his brothers. While he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came out. He shouted things against Israel as usual, and David heard him. When the Israelites saw Goliath, they were very much afraid and ran away. They said, look at this man. He keeps coming out to challenge Israel. The king will give much money to whoever kills him. He will also let whoever kills him marry his daughter, and his father's family will not have to pay taxes in Israel. David asked the men who stood near him, what will be done to reward the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the shame from Israel? Who does this uncircumcised Philistine think that he is? Does he think he can speak against the armies of the living God? The Israelites told David what would be done for the man who would kill Goliath. When David's older brother, Elab, heard David talking with the soldiers, he was angry with David. And he asked David, Why did you come here? Who's taking care of those few sheep of yours in the desert? I know you are proud and wicked at heart. You came down here just to watch the battle. And David asked, Now what have I done wrong? Can't I even talk? When he turned to the other people and asked the same questions, they gave him the same answer as before. Yet what David said was told to Saul, and he sent for David. David said to Saul, Don't let anyone be discouraged. I, your servant, will go and fight this Philistine. Saul answered, You can't go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy. Goliath has been a warrior since he was a young man. But David said to Saul, I, your servant, have been keeping my father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and took a sheep from the flock, I would chase it. I would attack it and save the sheep from its mouth. When it attacked me, I caught it by its fur and hit it and killed it. I, your servant, have killed both a lion and a bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like them because he has spoken against the armies of the living God. The Lord who saved me from a lion and a bear will save me from this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and may the Lord be with you. Saul put his own clothes on David. He put a bronze helmet on his head and dressed him in armor. David put on Saul's sword and tried to walk around, but he was not used to all the armor that Saul had put on him. He said to Saul, I can't go in this because I'm not used to it. Then David took it all off. He took his stick in his hand and chose five smooth stones from a stream. He put them in his shepherd's bag and grabbed his sling. Then he went to meet the Philistine. At the same time, the Philistine was coming closer to David. The man who held his shield walked in front of him. When Goliath looked at David and saw that he was only a boy, tanned and handsome, he looked down on David with disgust. He said, Do you think I am a dog that you come at me with a stick? He used his God's names to curse David. He said to David, Come here. I'll feed your body to the birds of the air and to the wild animals. But David said to him, You come to me using a sword and two spears, but I come to you in the name of the Lord All-Powerful, the God of the armies of Israel. You have spoken against him. Today the Lord will hand you over to me, and I will kill you and cut your head off. Today I will feed the bodies of the Philistine soldiers to the birds of the air and the wild animals. Then all the world will know that there is a God in Israel. Everyone gathered here will know that the Lord does not need swords or spears to save people. The battle belongs to him, and he will hand you over to us. As Goliath came near to attack him, David ran quickly to meet him. 
He took a stone from his bag and put it in his sling and slung it. The stone hit the Philistine and went deep into his forehead, and Goliath fell face down on the ground. So David defeated the Philistine with only a sling and a stone. He hit him and killed him. He did not even have a sword in his hand. Then David ran and stood beside him. He took Goliath's sword out of its holder and killed him by cutting off his head. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they turned and ran. The men of Israel and Judah shouted and chased the Philistines all the way to the entrance of the city of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. The Philistines' bodies lay on the Shereim road as far as Gath and Ekron. The Israelites returned after chasing the Philistines and robbed their camp. David took Goliath's head to Jerusalem and put Goliath's weapons in his own tent. When Saul saw David go out to meet Goliath, Saul asked Abner, commander of the army, Abner, who is this young man's father? Abner answered, As surely as you live, my king, I don't know. The king said, Find out whose son he is. So when David came back from killing Goliath, Abner brought him to Saul. Saul, David was holding Goliath's head. Saul asked him, Young man, who is your father? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse of Bethlehem. Thank you. Excellent. Very good. You get off for two weeks for that. Uh, That's two. two. (laughs) David and Goliath, there it is right there. How awesome is that? What is your reactions? Well, I'm a little puzzled. Hmm? previous chapter, David was already serving in Saul's court. Um, you'd think Saul would know all about him. See how he offers softballs? He just lobs them for me, and I'm like ready. And he's like, softball? Hit. We'll jump right into that then. We are going to address our first assumption about how the Bible was written. Our first assumption that we're going to address is that it was written in a strict chronological order. I can guarantee you, and I can provide countless facts to show that is not true. The authors of the Bible never intended to present to you a work of historical linear chronological events ever. That was never their intent. That wasn't their purpose. What is the purpose of the authors who wrote the books of the Bible? Pass on stories or, you know, of what happened bits and pieces. Okay, writing Bible to recount stories. Okay. I think to demonstrate God's glory like through the different through throughout history and time. God's, and I'll, I'll add a word for you, power of glory. Okay, excellent. He's trying to teach us who God is. And, teach us. And through that, give us a relationship with him. I think a catapult of that would be seeing um, God's actual character, you know, not just who he is, but like how he's going to react in different situations, like his character and, you know, how to, what to expect from him. Okay. I like that. It gives an account of how we people respond to God, both sides of Okay, and some of this, like demonstrate God's power and glory, teach us who God is, his character, and how people respond, think about who the Bible is written to. If you grew up in the church, God bless you. God bless you because you have already been hearing this your whole life. What if you didn't grow up in the church? What if you believe in gods like Dagon or Ashtoreth or... You don't believe in God. 
or who your was parents were bad examples even if you did grow up in that I mean you it kind of shows us the dangers of bad choices isn't it just kind of a history of the um, Israelites you know in their mm -hmm. Their whole trip from Egypt mm -hmm. and coming into the Promised Land. Mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. The Old Testament was written to point us to Christ. Okay. I mean, not now we know that, and I guess it's an inspired word of God. Okay. To have done that, but so did they know that mm -hmm. when they were writing that? <laughs> so this is it. So that's a different one. So so this is this is what I'm going to make the point here is that. <clears throat> I do believe that this was, and, and, and almost every scholar will tell you that these were the purposes. The, the, the men, largely, probably almost exclusively, who sat down to put pen to paper or, or pen to parchment uh, uh, or pen to a variety of other things, uh, you know, uh, chisel to tablet, <clears throat> were doing it to basically tell you the truth of who God was and who was God's chosen people. And that was for the Old Testament, that God's chosen people were the people of Israel or the people of Jacob and his descendants. For the New Testament to tell you who is Jesus Christ. And so <clears throat> who God is, his character, and who Jesus, and to some, ex some extent the Holy Spirit is. Also, I think... God was really big on, well, he is big on remember. He always is like, he yeah. wanted the Israelites to have festivals and stuff yep. to remember, and he also wanted them to read the law yep. so that they would remember what he had done for them. Um, God did for his people. So, you have to remember that in antiquity, writers did not write to, to write a historical, strict historical linear account. They almost never did that. Even if you read the, the classics like Homer um, uh, or Herodotus, the, the, the father of history, his, his, or Josephus, even Josephus does this, who wrote the history of the people of Israel, it was never about writing a linear historical account. It was about telling you stories. It was about telling you who God was. It was about telling you who you were and your place in the universe. It was not about, I'm going to tell you what happened at 1 o'clock in the morning, then 2 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock. That was not important to those authors. It was not important to any of them. With different writers, it's kind of interesting because yeah. like Luke being a doctor, he's going to get more detail. Yeah. Matthew being a, a tax collector, you're going to get... Yeah. Detail maybe in a different way. Yes, that's true too. They, they, they yep. did things that the other ones didn't even tell yep. them the same story. I love that. About Jesus. Yep. So we'll get to that too in a minute about multiple authors. What I want to make the point here is this. Look at First Samuel. I want you to look at, and, and to, I'm going to go back to Steve's point. He made the comment that it seems as though Saul already met David, so why is it like he's never met him before, Okay. First, I want you to challenge your own assumption there. 1 Samuel 16, verses 14 to 23. That is a section of material in which the author of 1 Samuel has taken. And remember, what does the author of 1 Samuel have? Let me write this down here. The author of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. He maybe, and I'm going to say authors, because it's almost certainly authors. The authors of 1 Samuel have 
their own eyewitness accounts, but they also have written material. They have access to written material and records and stories. They also have access to oral stories that have been handed down to them. There are many books and letters in the Bible that are referred to that we no longer have today, um, like the books of the kings, and ki- uh, uh, the kings of Israel and Judah and stuff like that, that we don't have those anymore. There is obviously access to all of this material the author has that he is now putting together into a narrative. The focus here, folks, a coherent narrative. What is a narrative? Story, that means what? What does coherent mean? Makes sense. Understandable. It's understandable. It makes sense. The author is assuming you know nothing about this material. And he is starting from the very beginning, and he wants to present it in a way that makes sense. It looks as though he wanted to make sure that when Samuel is anointed in chapter 16, we have this beautiful relationship between Samuel and David that happens. Now, I mean, when David is anointed. I'm sorry, yes, David, sorry, thank you. David is anointed by Samuel to be the next king of Israel. It appears as though the author wants to make a coherent point here and demonstrate the relationship, saying, remember, the first, maybe chapters 14, 15, and 16 are showing Saul in a very negative light. He's a coward. He's not going to God for help. He is an idolater. Saul is putting himself above God, Yahweh. The author for Samuel looks like he wants to finish that that thought. And he takes some material and he puts it at the end of chapter 16 to show how David, once anointed, at some point after his anointing, was recruited to come in and soothe Saul to play his harp. Now, if you are assuming this, and you may not even realize you have done it, You may assume you're reading a strict, linear, chronological account. Well, I went from chapter 16, verse 13, and I went to 14. That must have happened right after that. Well, and I think they're trying to show, right, that in verse 13, he says the Lord's Spirit started to work in David from the time of his anointing. And then the next verse, 14, says the Lord's Spirit left Saul. So they're trying to connect the two of how the Spirit left Saul, went into David, you know. This is the point. If I had written this in a strictly chronological order, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and prove to you that this was written later, this happened later, that it would have been confusing for the reader because you would have gone from the, the spirit of David and coming on David in power, only later, many chapters maybe later, have come back to that thought that the author was trying to finish here. And it would have been confusing. You may have lost the point, okay? To make a clear and obvious point, or maybe I would say connection between material. I'm a scientist. I will offer a hypothesis. My hypothesis is this. I take every piece of the Bible and I throw away the verse and chapter numbers. First of all, that's not a bad idea to do because those came in the Middle Ages as simply a way for people who were starting to translate the Bible to be able to have chapter and verse references so they could match them up one to one. Chapter and verses were not in the original writing. I take every story, indeed every sentence, on its own. As I put it into my bucket and I think about it, 
and I don't try and artificially put it in order. I'm going to make this hypothesis. Chronologically, chapter 17 happened before chapter 16, verse 14. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. Assume that on the battlefield for David and Goliath, that is the first time that Saul has ever even met David or heard of Jesse. Here's my evidence for that. First of all, it's obvious here that no one knew who, Je who uh, David was. <clears throat> Goliath came and stood. He called out. Chapter 17, verse 12, looks like a natural introduction to David, as if you have never heard of David before. Now, David was the son of an Ephraimite named Jesse. So now we have been introduced to two people, David and Jesse. Think about it for the first time, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons. And in Saul's time, he was old and well advanced in years, <clears throat> et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Which we already knew. Mm -hmm. You've been introduced, but let's assume for a minute you didn't know that yet. Because it seems as though the author mm -hmm. is introducing David as he would to Saul even. Now Jesse said to his son David, take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these cheeses to the commander of the unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. They're with Saul and they're in the Valley of Elah. Okay, so David goes and he loads it all up and he goes out. David left his things, he went with his keeper. Okay, now let's go all the way. <laughs> let's go down a little bit here. All right. Now what have I done? So David, can't I even speak? And then he turned away to someone else and brought up the matter and the man answered. So he is, David is going around the camp and he's talking to different people. Like, what is, who is this Philistine? And why aren't we going to attack him? Finally, he comes to Saul himself. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul and Saul sent for him. Here's this guy in camp that's saying these things that we should go attack the Philistines. So David said to the, Saul, let no one lose heart on account of the Philistines. Your servant will go and fight. So he goes, you're not able to fight. You're only a boy. Blah, 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 blah. Servant's been fighting. Keep. So he, obvious here, David is now telling Saul about his life as a shepherd. Mm -hmm. okay? It seems as though this is the first time he's heard it. Well, I'm a, I'm a shepherd. And I've been serving my father, Jesse. I live in Bethlehem. And I have fought off lions and bears. But there is no evidence that David has been in war or battle before. You'll see there's no evidence here that he has been in battle. And so you can read from this that he's never been at war before. And that seems to be the natural kind of uh, uh, flow here. <coughs> what do we say here? I don't think Saul paid attention to David when he nope. was telling him everything. Because after the battle, he's asking everybody who David's dad is and who David is. Like, he's trying to figure it out, and they're like, we don't know. This is it. So, that, and then we'll jump to the end. So that's exactly right. As we get to the end, Saul is watching David go out to meet the Philistines. He says to Abner, his commander, now I will guarantee you, the commander of the army knows everything that's going on. He knows what his men know, <clears throat> and he knows what the people know. Even Abner himself had no idea who David was. Now, I will, I will make the comment. If David had, earlier, already been introduced to Saul and been playing his harp, you better bet your buckets and your biscuits that he knew who David was, because he would be playing for the king in, in solitude. There's no way the commander of the army would let some stranger come in and play for Saul and not have any idea who he was. Mm -hmm. That makes no sense whatsoever. So it seems as though... No one has met David before in camp until this moment. Yeah, in 16, it also said that David was a warrior. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
Now that's and in 17, he's still a shepherd. <clears throat> yes. so. The only way that this makes any sense is if only after the battle of David and Goliath is David recruited to become the harp player for Saul, who now calls him a warrior. The only way that makes sense is if he's already fought Goliath. So that's my hypothesis and that's my evidence, and maybe I'm completely wrong. But I think this gets at this point, which is really important for you guys and gals. Our assumptions can lead to problems that the enemy can use to attack what you believe is true about the Bible. Mm -hmm. This is not true. Now, once you free yourself of that, now all of a sudden the contradictions evaporate. The enemy's lies about how the Bible was written dissolve. If you know the author has moved material around to make a coherent narrative and that he has released himself from strict chronological order, this all makes perfect sense. Makes perfect sense. What else do you take from chapter 17? It seems very like counterintuitive for mm -hmm. them to ever have let David just do it. <laughs> because I feel like either they're so desperate at this point. I mean, they said it's been for, like, did they say it's 40, 40 days at least he, yep. he's been doing it? I mean, I don't know. I would have a hard time if I was like, oh, the, the Philistines are going to, mm -hmm. like, take me over. I guess mm -hmm. I'll just take my chances with this David kid. I don't what did they have to lose? They have a lot to lose. No, what did, Dave, what did, what did they have to lose to let David try? Everything. Okay. They Why? Become the servants of the. Okay. Philistines. Was that really true? Because what happens when the yeah. when the Philistines right. lost? That was that, they, they that wasn't going to happen. That, right. that wasn't going to happen. <laughs> don't get, yeah. Don't, don't believe that. <clears throat> don't believe all, that. And I, and I recognize this in the way the enemy works today. It, everyone is just very dismissive of David. Just. Yep. You're out. Oh, hey, who's tending to the few sheep? <laughs> You know, oh, you know, who's taking care of those eight little lambs out there? To be fair, it was his older siblings. Right. <laughs> and they're not going to be nice ever. Right. Yep. But then, it, I mean, it just, it's on and on, though. It's, you know, Saul puts all his armor on here, little kid, try this on. You know, yeah. I mean, it's, Well, and I think that came down to having this one view of what a warrior was to look was like or act like. like. And yep. I think that he didn't fit their view, kind of like when yeah. Jesus came yeah, and he didn't fit the view of the leader that they thought was coming. I think when David stepped up, instead of being David and David could do it on his own, they expected him to be what they thought a, a warrior should look like. So they were trying to make him into that. Now, I want to challenge that assumption too. And I, I, don't, mm -hmm. I don't say it's wrong. I say that is the natural human reaction here. That was absolutely Saul's reaction. Mm -hmm. Saul sees this as a battle of men, and he sees it as a battle of great men. Mm -hmm. Who does David see this battle as? God versus God. Yes! Yeah. And that is something that the people still do not get. David and maybe comes, I'm just yeah, thinking that, yeah. you know, David was filled with the Holy Spirit yes. at this point, the yes. Spirit of the Lord. And so I think people recognize that. Like, at least in the period of the judges, when the person was filled with the Spirit of the yep. Lord, then they were the leader, and people kind of 
I think we were drawn to them, and I think maybe that is part of... We watched Gladiator last night. I'm sorry, I love that movie. I love Gladiator. It's so violent, and you know what? I don't know. I watched the TBS version, so it's less violent. It's still violent. What, what, is, what does Proximo say? Proximo is his, his slave uh, owner and trader, and he's, he's the ex-Gladiator, right? What does Proximo say? He says, win the crowd, and you'll win your freedom. He says, you don't have to be the strongest. You don't have to be the tallest, you don't have to be the youngest, you don't have to be the fittest, you have to win the crowd. Win the crowd, you win your freedom. The Holy Spirit came upon David in power. Who did David win? Was he the tallest? No. Was he no. the strongest? No. He won, he won the crowd. He won the crowd, and I 100% agree with what Laura's saying here. You know, from Saul's so. perspective, what does he have to lose? Yeah. Um, from one side, he's got this kid who's yep. really probably annoying him. Yep. Making, you know. This was a, my point. Yeah. A good argument. Like, okay, kid, you won't shut up. I'm going to let go you. Go out and prove it. Yeah. I'm going to go let you go do this. Because, yep. you know, these two encampments, they're both sitting on hills or mountains. Yep. There's a valley in between. Neither one can rush the other. Because right. Because the minute one goes down yes. to rush the other, then they're immediately at a disadvantage. That's, this is great, Steve. Great. I love and this. so. What's he got to lose? Because if, if David actually is what he's purporting to be, you know, a, a servant of God, and, and, you know, on the slim chance that that's true, hey, then Goliath gets killed, and then, you know, the, the momentum swings, and the Philistines see their leader die, and then that's what causes them to run. Love this. You know, they, the Philistines could have just <laughs> held their ground. And make no mistake, God wasn't yep. involved with this. The, the Philistines have the advantage, not just on the hills, which I agree with. Technologically, you, you notice the, the, the um, <clears throat> references here to his iron armor. And I make this comment, and it sounds dry and, and pedantic, but you are at the beginning of the Iron Age here. You're at the beginning of when mankind has learned to harness the power of making and refining iron and steel, which is far superior mm -hmm. to any other metal, so bronze, um, even copper, uh, alloys that have been made before this, it, you can destroy them. With just a few iron swords, steel swords, you can, you can destroy their armor, you can destroy uh, their, their own tools. Now the people of, the is of Israel have not yet really mastered this, and you can read right here, the Philistines have the technological, it's kind of like, you know, maybe the United States showing up against a, a, you know, a foreign foe or something who maybe has less tanks or less aircraft or what have you. So they have all the reason to be kind of gutsy here, Philistines, right? So it's really, it's really the Israelites fight to, to attack, right? Um, the Philistines could just stand there all day and they can keep marching if they want. Now look how close they are. I mean, this really is in Israelite territory here, folks. <clears throat> look how close they are to Bethlehem. And it, probably I could have drawn this even closer. They're right at the doorstep. Of, of the Israelites' camp and, and their, their homes. They just keep marching, and they march, and they march. So, yeah. So you think that David, okay, so I've never thought this before. I've always thought that, that um, the story of David and Goliath came before he was, before David was anointed. That's what I was thinking. No. Yeah, I've grown up thinking. I don't know. And that's a good question, but I would say this. I think I would say that he's already been anointed because I think you have to remember how it went with Saul. 
Samuel is <laughs> Samuel is not a man of um, pomp and entertainment and show. He's not a man that likes to bring 100,000 people together and say, hey, look at me, how great I am. How did he anoint Saul? Followed him down the road, went to a private room, and anointed him first in private. Only later to kind of slowly tell people, I've anointed this man as the next king, or the first king of Israel. And only later did he hold a public <coughs> ceremony to demonstrate that Saul was already the anointed king. It would completely fit within Samuel's kind of modus operandi to say, I've done the same thing with David now. I've gone to David in, in private. I have anointed him as the next king of Israel. And then what did it say? Did Samuel take David and take him to Saul and tell him this is the next king? What did he do? He went to Ramah and he let David go back to Bethlehem. That is exactly what happened with Saul. Saul was anointed as the, as the first king of Israel. Samuel left and Saul went back to plowing his fields. So we don't have, I think, proof one way or the other, but because the Holy Spirit came on David in power and allowed him to defeat Goliath, I believe, maybe wrongly so, he was already the anointed king of Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him in power. That's the only way I think he could have defeated Goliath. Also, though, too, if, um, if he had already been, if he had already killed Goliath at that point, then when Samuel went to visit, I mean, it wouldn't have been like, hey, do you have any more? Yeah. Really? yeah, I like this. Yeah. This is great. He would have known that that there was more. Because he, he paraded his sons out. Yeah, right. Eight sons were paraded out. Yeah. He's he like, no, not this anymore. Yeah. Like he didn't know him at all. I love this. I think that's good. And so this is a great thought exercise that as you sit down and do your Bible study every morning, which you're doing, right? <laughs> or every night, one hour a day, you're doing it every day. You're thinking to yourself, I want to put this together in my head logically. Let's think about it. And the only way you're going to do that is to read it and to remember it. So you're reading all of it. And you're putting it all together. And maybe you're doing like me. Maybe not completely like me. You have some kind of notebook. You're writing your thoughts. Maybe you just write one sentence. Maybe you're, you're like me and you're an idiot and you write this much. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, I don't remember everything. See, my notebook's way more thorough than yours. Yeah. <laughs> Read your Bible, read it every day, use your brain. God gave you a brain, folks. He doesn't want blind servants, okay? That's, that's where cults happen. That's where um, pagan religions happen. Use your brain. God gave you knowledge and a brain. Use it. Okay. Let's move on to chapter 18 because we've got to quickly uh, kind of wrap up here. This is thankfully shorter. We'll do 18, 1 through 30. Who would like to do that for me? I'll read it. Thanks. After David had finished talking with Saul, he met Jonathan, the king's son. There was an immediate bond between them, for Jonathan loved David. From that day on, Saul kept David with him and wouldn't let him return home. And Jonathan made a solemn pact with David because he loved him as he loved himself. Jonathan sealed the pact by taking off his robe and giving it to David, together with his tunic, sword, bow, and belt. Whatever Saul said asked David to do, David did it successfully. So Saul made him a commander over the men of war, an appointment that was welcomed by the people and Saul's officers alike. When the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine, women from all over the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. Mm -hmm. 
They sang and danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals, and this was their song. David has killed his thousands, and excuse me, Saul has killed his thousands, and David his ten thousands. This made Saul very angry. What's this? He asked. They credit David with ten thousand men, and me with only thousands. Next, they'll be making him their king. So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The very next day, a tormenting spirit from God overwhelmed Saul, and he began to rave in his house like a madman. David was playing the harp as he did each day, but Saul had a there. spear in his hand. Caught that. <laughs> you yeah, caught that. Caught yeah. it. Chronological. And he suddenly hurled it at David, intending to pin him to the wall. But David ex escaped him twice. Saul was then afraid of David, for the Lord was with David and had turned away from Saul. Finally, Saul sent him away and appointed him commander over a thousand men, and David faithfully led his troops into battle. David continued to succeed in everything he did, and the Lord was with him. When Saul recognized this, he became even more afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he was so successful at leading his troops into battle. One day, Saul said to David, I am ready to give you my older daughter, Merab, mm -hmm. as your wife. But first, you must prove yourself to the real warrior by fighting the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, I'll send him out against the Philistines and I'll let, him kill, and I'll let them kill him rather than do it myself. Who am I and what is my family in Israel that I should be the king's son-in-law? David exclaimed. My family's nothing. My family's my family is nothing. So when the time came for Saul to give his daughter Merab in marriage to David, he gave her instead to Adriel, a man from Maloa. In the meantime, Saul's daughter Michael had fallen in love with David, and Saul was delighted when he heard about it. Here's another chance to see him killed by the Philistines, Saul said to himself. But to David he said, Today you have a second chance to become my son-in-law. Then Saul told his men to say to David, The king really likes you, and so do we. Why don't you accept the king's offer and become his son-in-law? When Saul's men said these things to David, he replied, How can a poor man from a humble family afford a bride, the bride price for the daughter of a king? When Saul's men reported this back to the king, he told them, Tell David that all I want for the bride price is a hundred Philistine foreskins. Vengeance on my enemies is all I really want. <clears throat> But what Saul had in mind was that David would be killed in the fight. David was delighted to accept the offer. Before the time limit expired, he and his men went out and killed 200 Philistines. Then David fulfilled the king's requirement by presenting all the foreskins to him. So Saul gave his daughter Michael to David to be his wife. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and how much his daughter Michael loved him, Saul became even more afraid of him, and he remained David's enemy for the rest of his life. Every time the commanders of the Philistines attacked, David was more successful against them than all the rest of Saul's officers. So David's name became very famous. Thank you very much. Let's finish this off. What battle did David get all those gross foreskins? <laughs> I don't know. Single author? Well, Moses recorded his own death. No, he didn't. <laughs> Samuel recorded his own death. Never edited? We know right here that the, that the chronological account has been edited <coughs> to fit a narrative so that it's clear and concise. It's never, never, never edited. 
focus on historical perspective? Kinda, kinda. <laughs> it's important, but it's not. <clears throat> what do you take away from chapter 18? And again, if you're following along, I've put what I would, I would say is the actual chronological event, the pieces together to show what the actual chronology was. Now let's forget about that. What do you get theologically, philosophically from chapter 18? Okay, so the most confusing part, yep. and I'm sure, I'm sure that there's a reason, but it isn't really stated. David knows he's anointed. He's fully aware he's going to be the king, and yet he's not saying <clears throat> Like Saul's trying to kill him. He's playing the liar, and he's throwing it at him. He's sending him out to battle purposely huh? to be killed, and David's not saying a word to anybody, and Why? he's just doing whatever he's told. Why? Because he was a servant of the Lord. Yes! And does anointing you as the next king of Israel mean the, the current guy's got to go immediately and I have to kill him? I, I wouldn't assume that. And, and we're skipping ahead a little bit. There will be years now in which David is the servant of Saul and he has every opportunity and really right <laughs> from a man's perspective to kill him. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't. Gets back to what Rodney said. Mm -hmm. I, I kind of I look at Saul in the beginning when he was first anointed and he was very humble yeah. to begin with. Mm -hmm. And then his once he got into power, he took a, took this ego on and look at me yeah. and oh I guess I am taller and bigger than everybody else. And then now you've got David that comes along and as Saul's ego grows, David's still mm -hmm. that humble servant. Who am I to I can't even afford a dowry? I, you know I'm not going to be the king's son-in-law here. There's mm -hmm. I mean, even knowing what was coming. Uh huh. I mean, because that, that would make sense, right? That he that he would marry into the family, yeah. and to I mean, maybe not. Be, Saul being the first king doesn't necessarily mean that at that point they'd established a kingly family. Mm -hmm. But I just Which love his mean? humility. I like that his training. Yeah, humility and training, and working for a guy that's not very humble at this point is probably great training. <laughs> Like what Kim's saying is making me think about, mm -hmm. like, I think God saw what happened with Saul mm -hmm. and how he just kind of jumped right into being yes. king. And like God this. is giving David the time to mm -hmm. be kind of tested, yeah, you know, and to make sure that David is like the kind of king that he wants him to be. Like he gives yeah. David a lot of opportunities to like kill Saul mm -hmm. and, you know, he could just be like, he's a very popular general yeah. or, you know leader so he could just be like well i'm king you know so he mm -hmm. had a lot of opportunities that god i feel like maybe was testing him and like yep. preparing him to be the kind of king that god really wanted i him think to this be. gets back to what jessica said a few weeks ago and she's like you got to cut some saul some slack he didn't have any any archetype to really follow now you could argue you know different way he had samuel and you know he had the prophets and that kind of thing but there was no there was no king before saul mm -hmm. to follow now we got a king and, you know, he might not be doing everything wrong. Remember, too, everyone's a mix of good and bad. I can't believe that 100% of what Saul's doing at this point is bad. I think David's learning a lot. Well, yeah, and I mean, he's sitting there in the court playing the harp, so he's seeing kind of yeah. what things are going on so he can take he's what watching. he likes, what he's he watching. thinks is good and what is not good. The guy playing the harp is seeing everything. Look, yes. you don't get an audience in front of the king just for knocking what's, on the door. What's he playing the harp for? <laughs> you know, I mean, what's going on? There. Well, wasn't that... They said, I mean, back at cha two chapters now, 
they talked about the reason he was he was playing the liar was he was he was trying to ward off the evil spirit yeah. that came on Saul that was tormenting <clears throat> him. When he would hear the music, it would actually take the it would chase the spirit off. Kind it chases of. it my spirits away. I like listening to music. <laughs> Maybe I'm vexed with. David also really right now doesn't have anything to lose. Yeah. I mean, especially if he really believes that God mm. is has anointed him. Mm. He can be in all sorts of dangerous situations, and he doesn't have anything to lose. It's, it's interesting you say that, because you really see the character of David. He really is very brave. I have to say, much braver than maybe I would be. He's fought yeah. bears. He's fought lions. He's fought Goliath. Mm-hmm. Right? Well, What's, bears and the lions was even before he was yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes, his character he already is good. He's filled with the Spirit of God yes. already then. I think he's good at remembering. See, like, God always wants us. Like, I think if we Mm -hmm. remember every time that God's come through with us, Mm -hmm. for us, like, he knows that God has helped him defeat Goliath and bears and lions and, you know, all these different things. I think if we remember all the things that God has done for us, we enter our life braver, (laughs) you know, than we were the day before, you know. I was raised definitely not a Christian. But I saw God's hand in my life mm. long before I knew who God was, mm-hmm. and I think He chooses. He knows who's who's coming, where where they're at, and where. And He He's forming us even before we know that we're even on that path. And I think with David, that was definitely a thing. David was already on that path long mm-hmm. before he was anointed. David had every opportunity to become proud. Yes, mm-hmm. I mean, don't take lightly that the women were singing. I mean, if I was David at that point, yeah. and all the women were coming around like, oh, check out David. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, check that's right. Well, and maybe that was some of why Saul was constantly trying to kill him. Maybe it was to teach him, you know what? You've got all of this stuff. You've done all these great things, but look, you're still human. David wasn't always humble. That's <laughs> true. David had plenty of proud moments in his life. And, and he had true? problems with women probably because yeah. of this. Yeah. Well, definitely because of it. <laughs> Make some bad choices later on. <laughs> I'm still hung up on who asks for a hundred foreskins. <laughs> that well, there's a reason for this. I want you to think about this. That's yeah. what separates them from their own men. Is that's the it, that's exactly it. Know, that's exactly it. Saying, yes. Who asks for that? <laughs> well, it's, well, it's not any different scalp? than the scalps. <laughs> think about this, and, and we all know the answer. And I'm just yeah. going to say the obvious here. You know, a few weeks ago, I told you about the story of how Egyptians would count the number of dead on a battlefield. It was unreliable to just go out and count because you might, you might double count, you might miscount. You cut off their, their right hands. You cut off every right hand and you put it in a pile and then someone would go through and count those and you knew exactly how many people died. Counting foreskins, how are you going to know that that's the Philistines that were killed? Because the, they, the, the Israelites don't have foreskins. Hebrews don't have any. <laughs> so you'll know exactly how many he killed. It's a, it's a perfect record. Now it's gross. Don't get me it wrong. It is very gross. I don't want to be the... David wasn't the guy cutting them. <laughs> I wonder if they were wearing them around necklaces or something. <laughs> All right. We'll talk about uh, disgusting pagan practices next week. But, uh, but thank you for joining us. So I think, I think this is a great... And, and I want to I close this on the application here. How many of you have fought a bear in your life? How many of you have fought a bear? Metaphorically. Metaphorically, yeah. How many of you have fought Goliath? Yeah. God is with you. God is with you. Now, if you go into battle 
in a holy and righteous way, seeking God's glory and his glory, not your own, who is God going to support in that? Mm-hmm. Folks, there is no better analogy for God being on your side against the world, the wicked world. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to go out and cut people's heads off. It means that God is going to give you victory when the enemies that you may not even want, look, all of us have people who hate us for no reason, okay? You may not have sought an enemy or, or tried to make someone angry at you, but they will hate you. There will be people that hate you. There will be even loved ones that get mad with you. In the end, if you truly believe that God is on your side and you follow him and you know what his laws are because you read them every day for an hour and you're writing them down somewhere, then God of the universe is on your side. He is real. He will respond. And folks, there is no better way to prove to yourself and others that God is working than to write a record of them. Every time he answers your prayer, you glorify him and you write it down and he will respond. Okay. I've heard it, I've heard it said that David didn't seek, didn't set out to kill a giant that day. He was taking his brother's supper yeah. and a giant got in the way. That's great. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's... You know, we have things come along, but if we keep marching forward with what God has for us. I think, um, I, love that. I, I love mean, that. how many of us have been on our daily path and all of a sudden God speaks to us and it's like, go talk to this person yeah. or go feed this person or go do this or this person mm-hmm. needs you, give a column and you hijack your day and, and you do what God told you to do because that's what you're supposed to do. I mean, if you're listening yeah. to God, that's something we all go through on a regular basis. Goliath isn't always a nine-foot giant with iron armor. Sometimes he is public speaking. <laughs> Sometimes he is going and serving food to the poor. Mm-hmm. Go forth and serve God and others. Thank you. We'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.